Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Scholars have tried for years to locate the Mount Sinai of Exodus, and if found, it's likely the rescue of the Israelites pinned between the water and Pharaoh will seem even more miraculous. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Exodus with the second part of this sermon entitled A Rescue Story for the Ages, which covers Exodus chapter 14. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Last week was part one of this teaching that we're doing through, um, through the book of Exodus. And I kept using a word last week that I want to bring back to the forefront again this week as we get into this second part. Rescue. Rescue, rescue, rescue. We love stories of rescue. Whenever we come across stories of rescue on social media, whether it's an animal who's been rescued or whether it's a person who's been rescued or whatever it may be, we share those stories. We love stories of rescue. One of the things that I did this week that that was really fun for me to do is I studied just a little bit, not too in-depthly, but I studied some on the history of rescue stories. Sometimes we call them fairy tales. Sometimes we call them fables, even mythology. But stories that have been told throughout the history of humanity. And it doesn't matter if it, what the kingdom is, what the country was. It doesn't matter what and where it happened. Humanity, man and woman, have told stories for generations upon generations upon generations of rescue. And these stories that are told, regardless of where they're coming from, what part of the world they're coming from, almost always include three core components, three key components that are, that are almost always a part of these rescue stories. One is there's, there's quite often a bride to be rescued, there's a dragon to be slayed, and there's a hero who wins the day. And you see it time and time again. You know, one of the reasons that I think that mankind has told these stories for so long is because deep in our hearts, in the deep essence of who we are, we sense, we feel deeply that the perils of this broken world feel irredeemable. It it can often feel as though we are beyond rescue. When we consider life and how life, even as we talked about last week, can often feel as though we are hemmed in at every side and there is no way out, we long for rescue. We want something to come or someone to come and save the day. But there is one story. There's one, and it's not a fable. It's not a fairy tale. It's true, and and in fact, what was fascinating for me to start to tie together in my own personal study was how many of these stories that have been told throughout countries and kingdoms and generations are actually get their basis from this one story. A mimicking, if you will, of the grand story that God has been writing from the very beginning. The same principles are there, just misapplied with the wrong rescuer. The same principles of there's a bride to be rescued, there's a dragon to be slayed, and there's a a rescuer who comes and saves the day, a hero. 
But this true story is the story of the Bible. It's the story of what we commonly call the gospel. It's the redemptive narrative that God has been writing from the very beginning. And it's the story that uh, has been told for generations upon generations upon generations. It's the good news. And it's the story that is, as I said last week, encapsulated for us even in the book of Exodus. The, the narrative of Exodus stands on its own, but it also points to a greater story, a, a, a bigger thread, if you will, throughout all the Bible. But then if you narrow down even more, there's, there's this chapter, chapter 14 of Exodus, that has the account of the crossing of the Red Sea that whether you've been in or around church, you're probably familiar with. You know this account where God's people have been led out of slavery and they're to this point where they have been hemmed in at every side. They look this way and they see water and they look this way and they see the greatest army in the world of that day, the Egyptian army coming towards them and certain death on both sides. And then a rescue happens that seems at some level unbelievable. Only what God can do to save a bride. You know, it's interesting. In the Old Testament, what you're going to see from God's people, the Israelites, is after this story and after the book of Exodus, they are going to become uh, referred to more and more often as the bride of Yahweh the bride of God most high. And what we see in Exodus, what we see in the crossing of the Red Sea, and what we see in the whole biblical narrative is this. We see a faithful husband rescuing his long lost bride and crushing the very face of evil to do so. That's our story in Exodus 14, and that's the story of the Bible. Now, before I, there's three things I want to walk through with you this morning that are really significant. But before we do, I want to answer a couple of questions that you might be asking. You may not be. Maybe once I bring it up, you'll say, yeah, I'm, now I'm asking that question. But one of the, one of the questions is this. Um, are we sure this was the Red Sea? Is, what body of water are we talking about here? This is hotly debated throughout the centuries. Many scholars, many, many biblical scholars have come to different conclusions on this. And there's lots of theories out there, lots of ways in which we could land and say, well, it was the Red Sea, the, the, what we know to be the Red Sea today, uh, and it was the very northern tip of the Red Sea, is what some have concluded. Others have concluded that, uh, uh, that it was one of the lakes that stretched from just north of the Red Sea. There's a series of lakes that are, that are just right there on the eastern side of Egypt that move their way in, you know, one, one after another all the way up to the Mediterranean Sea, freshwater lakes, and perhaps it was one of those. Now, uh, I'm, I'm a little reluctant to tell you where I land on that because some of you in here may say, Jeff, I've studied this more than you have, and you're wrong. Maybe. But I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, so I personally think that what probably, although I can't know for sure, and we can't know for sure. I think that it was probably one of these lakes. Doesn't mean that it wasn't. Maybe I'm wrong, right? 
But here's why I think that. There was one of these lakes that, uh, that was there when the Israelites were crossing uh, that was commonly called the Sea of Reeds. That perhaps, as the story has been passed down over the generations, uh, became the Red Sea. And there are parts of the Red Sea, even the northern part, that have commonly have had reeds in them. These stick-like plant-type things that, glow, that grow from the ocean floor. So maybe it was the Red Sea. Here's one of the reasons I think it was perhaps one of these lakes. Uh, the, the scripture makes it abundantly clear, and we'll talk more about this later, that uh, they passed through in one night from dusk until dawn of the next morning. Uh, I said last week this is probably a million-plus people passing through, and so to be able to pass through a body of water like that in one night, uh, it was probably at least in my opinion, a smaller body of water than an actual ocean or sea. And you have to remember this too. Uh, in biblical days, both in Old and New Testament, sea, that word sea, S-E-A, referred to any large body of water, not just salt water, not just ocean. Think Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is a lake in Israel, northern Israel, fresh water. And this was a term that they just used for large body of water. So these lakes that they might have passed through would have been called seas as well. Maybe, perhaps, it was the Sea of Reeds. Here, I'll say all that to say this. It really doesn't matter. Here's the bottom line. The bottom line is this. There was a big body of water that God led his people to. And they looked at that body of water, and they saw certain death and drowning. And they looked this way. And they saw certain death in the way of an army. Here's what we do know. And what I am convinced of is this. Whether it was the Red Sea or one of these lakes, reeds were involved. In the water were these reeds, which is fascinating to me because we start realizing, wow, God doesn't just write these little simple stories. He's pulling all kinds of things together. Do you remember? You might have been with us long enough to remember the first sermon in this series where I said something, I said that what we see right there in the first chapter of the book of Exodus is that God is at work, and I gave you four things. God is at work in the silence. God is at work in the bitterness. God is at work in the failures. And do you remember the last one? God is at work in the reeds. Because remember what's happening in Exodus chapter 1. What's happening is that uh, Israel has been enslaved for 400 years, and this rescuer shows up in the form of a baby. Sound familiar? And this baby is presented to us in the most unlikely of places. Sound familiar? And that unlikely of places, this baby Moses is placed into the Nile River among the reeds. The reason that was the last place that you would expect Moses to be placed is because that was the place of death. That was the place where babies were being cast into the Nile in the order, from the order of the Pharaoh. Because he was afraid that the Israelites were going to get too populated and take over. And so it was the place of death. It was the place of blood in this Nile River. And this Nile River represented the power of Egypt, this pagan land. And it was in these reeds, the last place that you think the rescuer would come. And we remembered in that story, God is at work in the reeds. And so here we are again. We're at this body of water. And there's reeds. 
in what seems insurmountable, God is at work. And he yet again is going to do what only he can do to rescue his bride. It's pretty fascinating to start thinking about the parallels that God is tracing for us in this book. And so we'll continue in that vein. I want to give you three things this morning uh, that are significant. And these are coming from, and this, uh, there's more. I'm just giving you three. There's many more. But a lot of these thoughts uh, I've had and developed as a result of, of reading this book, and I want to recommend it to you. Uh, this is a book by Michael Morales called Exodus Old and New, A Biblical Theology of Redemption outstanding resource if you want to dive deeper into the book of Exodus and, and begin to pull some of these threads that you may not see in, the, in, in just reading the book of Exodus. And so I, we may have a couple of copies of these in our bookstore, uh, but if we don't, Luann, who oversees our bookstore, has assured me that you can see her, you can order uh, either through our website or even going into the bookstore and she'll order a copy for you and make sure you have that. Um, but in this book, Uh, Morales brings out a number of things, and and, uh, I'm going to share three with you that I think are are very, very significant. Here's here's the heading that I want to give you. In the crossing of the Red Sea, there are several significant allusions to overarching biblical themes. Several different. Again, here's three that, that are very important. Here's the first one. There's an allusion throughout this story of the crossing of the Red Sea to creation and recreation. This biblical theme of creation and recreation. So with creation, this is one way that we could describe creation and what God was doing in creation. Just simply, God brings humanity into an ordered cosmos, into life with himself. He does this in part by displaying his sovereign control over the sea so that the chaotic waters turn into waters of life. So you go back to Genesis 1. What's going on right there in verse 2? So verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the face of the waters. So I want you to have a picture in your mind of there's this formless void. We can't really fathom what this is like because we can only understand it in the context of the earth as we know it today. But there was this formless void and it was chaotic. It was dark, but the spirit of God was present because remember God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is eternal, one God existing in three persons. He's not created, so he's there. He's hovering over the waters of the deep. And as God decides to create, one of the first things that he does is he begins to subdue the waters. You get down to verse 8, and it says this. It says, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And then he's continuing. It says, And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So God is bringing order to chaos. God is bringing uh, uh, fruition to something that was once void. To where when you get to Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 through 14, I won't read them. But what do you end up with? You end up with this glorious creation that we have this garden called Eden. And what's running out of Eden is four beautiful, life-giving rivers. 
to where God has taken the formless, void, chaos, and darkness of the waters, and he's made them into something life-giving and beautiful to sustain life and to glorify him. Now, what would be the point in me telling you all that? Remember, God is a God who reigns sovereignly over the seas. And even in his creative work, that was on full display. So we'll come back to that. Another theme that we see, another illusion that we see under this heading of creation and recreation is this, this theme, this illusion of darkness and light. Uh, think about this. What was God's first act in creation? It was separating the light from the darkness. So right after he does that with the, with the water in verse 2 and verse 3, he does this. It says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Is there more? I can't remember. I think that's it. Um, and so he separated the light from the darkness. First created act, or first, yeah, act of creation. What's his first act of deliverance at the Red Sea? His first act of deliverance of the Red Sea is the same thing, separating darkness from light. Look at verses 14, uh, chapter 14, 19 through 20. It says this, Then the angel of the Lord who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Okay, so what exactly is going on here? All right, so what we are told in the story up until this point is that as God was leading the Israelites out of Egypt, he was leading them by this pillar of cloud of the angel of the Lord, perhaps a pre-incarnate Christ. We're not exactly sure. But the Spirit of God, the, the angel of the Lord, is leading them in a pillar of cloud. And when they get to the sea and they feel hemmed in on every side and the Egyptian army is coming after them, this cloud moves from in front of them to behind them. And what happens is really, really fascinating. On one side of the cloud where the Egyptian armies are, it's complete and total darkness. To where we begin to get a picture in our heads that for this entire night that God is protecting the Israelites so that they may pass through the waters, he has cast Egypt in complete, into complete darkness. There was likely great confusion for them. Where did they go? What happened to these Israelites that we just saw right before us? But on the other side of the cloud, the cloud facing the sea where the Israelite hosts are, he lights up the night sky to where they can see clearly to pass through the way of deliverance. He's separating the darkness from the light. There's illusion here. There's imagery here too. I'm doing, listen, don't miss this. I'm doing a new created work to deliver my people and recreate them, so to speak, into newness of life. One more thing I'll speak to on the recreation front. Think about the flood. When we think about the flood that's recorded for us in, in Genesis chapter 6 and 7, it says, or you could say this, God delivers, this is the flood, God delivers humanity through the waters of judgment 
and back into an orderly, life-giving cosmos. What happened at the flood? Well, what we're told is that God looked upon humanity and he looks across everyone throughout the world and he sees that no one is good, that all are evil. And not only are they evil, all they do is think and act and do evil all day throughout the day. And so he brings waters of judgment upon the entire earth. In other words, he brings the chaos back. He brings the darkness back that was there before creation. So what does he do on the tail end of the flood? Genesis chapter 8 verse 1 says that he, he said, well, I'll read it to you. It says, and God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. What's happening at the Red Sea? God sends an eastern wind this time not to subside the waters, but to create yet again a division in the waters that land may appear, that life may happen. There's all kinds of illusions that are pointing to the bigger story, the bigger thread that we pull throughout the biblical narrative from Genesis to Revelation. But here's the second one I want you to see. The first one was this, this, this imagery of creation and recreation that's happening in the Red Sea uh, narrative. But the second one is this. I want you to realize, if, you, if you've never realized it or, or see it again, if you've seen it before, remember that God's people and all of humanity at that time saw the sea as Sheol. Now, what is Sheol? Sheol in ancient times is the place of death. It's the place of, of darkness. It's the place of judgment. It's the place of wrath. It's the, it's the place of chaos. I know I continue to say some of the same things, but this is how they viewed the sea. Any large body of water was, that's where you don't go because that's where you die. You don't go into the depths of the sea and come out alive because that's the place of the dead. Jonah is a great example of this. You might remember the story of Jonah, another infamous one, whether you've been in or around church or not where Jonah is commanded by the Lord to be a missionary to this very uh, evil pagan place called Nineveh. And he so hates the Ninevites that he runs in the opposite direction. He says, I will not go and do that. And so he runs westward to Joppa. And then if that weren't enough, he gets on a boat and he says, I'm out of here. I want to keep going west. And while he's running from God, God takes Jonah. And what does he do? He throws him into the water, into the sea. And, and look at Jonah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. This is a good uh, just summation of how all people viewed the sea back then that Jonah's articulating. He says this, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. This is, this is how they would have all seen the sea back then. And listen, it, it, we could all say it's still the same today in many ways. None of us, I would presume, are saying, hey, you know what? When I'm in a ship over the deepest parts of the seas, will you throw me in? I bet I'd thrive there. I bet that's a place of life. We say, no, it's a place of death. I mean, goodness, people, when I get 10 feet into the waters at the Gulf and something just barely touches my ankle, I freak out, right? We don't like the ocean. 
I read recently, and I say recently, uh, that's just what pastors say for at some point in my life. I, I read recently that we have only discovered 5% of the ocean's depths, or, or just of the ocean period. Of, uh, what? Like, we don't know what's down there. We're terrified. And if you're a person that says, send me into the depths of the sea, I, I'd like to talk to you. You're a little off, perhaps, but I love you. But I'd love to hear your logic. We don't want to go there. Because just like the ancients, the ancient people, we see that as a place of chaos, of darkness, a place where we don't want to go. So here's something to think about. One of the things that God is doing in creation, one of the things that God is doing in the story of the Red Sea is he's displaying yet again that he has power and dominion over the chaos. You ever wonder why Jesus walked on the water? Was it just because Jesus was like, hey, guys, watch this. This is going to be cool. Check this out. I bet you can't do it. No. It was to show them power, even over your greatest fears, you know, even over the depth of the chaos and the darkness that you fear most, the place of death itself, I walk upon it. It has no power over me. And you ever wonder why Peter was able to do it just for a moment? Some people teach, and it's not wrong for sure, that, well, he took his eyes off Jesus and he didn't have enough faith. And so as soon as he took his eyes off Jesus, he fell into the water. Yeah, to a certain extent. But you know what it was? It was Jesus showing that we are going to have that same ability one day and that we have it in part now. Because the scriptures tell us that we will reign with him forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. And the death and the darkness and the chaos that he treads upon, we will too. a glorious picture of what God is doing in the crossing of the Red Sea where he says, these waters that you fear, these depths that you don't ever want to go to, I'm going to actually show yet again that I have power over the chaos and I'm going to send you into it. Can you imagine how terrified they were? Can you imagine how much faith it took to take that first step following Moses and to go, um, um, we're going here? This is the route we're taking. I, I like my chances better with the Egyptian army than I do with the sea of wrath. But God said, I'm taking you there. Follow me. And don't miss this. At the close of the Bible itself, when we get to the end of the story that's pointing us to what's to come, in Revelation chapter 21, John is having this vision of the new heavens and new earth when Christ returns again. Look what he says. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. You ever read that and gone, God not like water? Like what, what? No, that's not what it's getting at here. What, what, what God is showing John is that, yeah, there's going to be water in the new heavens and the new earth. It's a physical reality. Heaven's going to come to earth. We're going to reign with Jesus here on this ball, and water will be here. But you know what won't be here? Chaos, death, 
darkness, destruction, judgment, condemnation, all the things that, has been, that have been represented in the sea for all of human history will be no more. Why? Because the rescuer has tread upon those things and he has taken us with him. It's a glorious story of a God who triumphs over the seas that stand in front of us that we think will absolutely consume us. And he says, not me. And so that brings us to the third thing. There's one overarching big reason as to why the Lord is doing this. I mean, he could have led them to all kinds of places where they could have just gone on into the wilderness of Sinai by land. He didn't have to lead them to this lake or to the northern rim of the, of the Red Sea. He didn't have to do that. Why would he do it? Here's the third thing is to slay the serpent, <laughs> the dragon. You go, wait, what? He tells us time and time again, twice, actually, in Exodus 14, why he's doing this. Look at this, verse 4. It says, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So he's saying, I'm going to get glory over Pharaoh. I'm going to get glory over all Egypt, and they're going to know that I am the one true God. Because who was Pharaoh? Pharaoh was their God. He says it again in verse 17 of chapter 4, 17 and 18. He says, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, not just Pharaoh, but the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. He's, Jesus, uh, God doesn't have a stuttering problem here. He's not just repeating himself for fun. He's saying twice here, I'm going to get glory over the one who represents in this story my enemy. We said earlier in this series, we said that Pharaoh represents darkness, the kingdom of darkness. And, and not even that, he represents the one who opposes God at every turn. But not only that, he represents Satan himself. If you go back to Genesis 3, uh, 15, you have at the very beginning of Scripture, when sin is minutes old, God's not wringing his hands going, oh my goodness, what do I do now? Adam and Eve blew it. He knows exactly what he's doing because sin is minutes old and he's pr pronouncing the curse upon Adam and Eve and the serpent. And he says to the serpent, he says to the serpent, he says, I'm going to put enmity, in other words, I'm gonna make enemies between you, serpent, and her offspring. And it's pointing to, to Jesus, to the savior, to the rescuer. And then he makes this promise, and we call this the first preaching of the gospel in the, in, the, in the Bible. He says, and he, talking about the offspring of Eve, Jesus, will crush your head. It's going to happen. In other words, subtext, you're going to think you're winning. You're going to think you've defeated this offspring of Eve. You're gonna think that you're winning the day. You're gonna think that you're the hero who has defeated the great God of all the universe. 
but you're going to be crushed. You know, it's very likely, we don't know for sure, but one of the great symbols of the God of Pharaoh for the Egyptians was a cobra. It's very likely that he was even donning a, a headdress that had a serpent on it as he went into the sea. What is Pharaoh representing? Pharaoh is representing that the serpent, you know what serpent, the word in Hebrew for serpent is often in the Old Testament translated dragon. So what is Pharaoh representing? That the dragon, the serpent has been slain. Because how did Jesus, how did he crush the head of Satan? How did he crush the head of the serpent? It wasn't by calling his people to say, let's go, I'm calling you to go into the depths of Sheol and darkness and chaos. And I'll hold the waters of judgment up so that you can pass through to the other side. The way Jesus crush, that crushes the head of the serpent is he actually does the exact opposite. He says, I will go into the depths of Sheol. I will go into the place of darkness, of chaos, of judgment, and of wrath. And instead of holding the waters up that I may not be covered in the waters of wrath, I will say, release them upon me. And in the judgment, let's be clear, in the judgment of my sin and your sin upon the only one who never sinned is the only way through which we walk into newness of life, into the presence of our God. It's only through him the way, the truth, and the life. Do you see the story? It's not a fable. It's not mythology. It's the one true rescue story that we can give ourselves fully to. And it has all three components that all of humanity for generations upon generations have tried to say there's, there's great rescue stories that I hope are true. And then we tell the great rescue story that is true. And it's got these three components. Because who is the church? Well, why did God rescue Israel? Why did he bring her through the waters of wrath? It was so that he could be with her and declare over her, you are mine. You're not Egypt's anymore. You're not in bondage anymore. You're mine. You're my wife. I love you and I will pursue you even though you will reject me at every turn. You will never see a more faithful husband who will continue to, to declare you spotless in my presence. That's what he did with Israel. Who is the church? Well, the New Testament tells us that the church is the new Israel. That we are what? The bride of Christ. And it is through the waters of wrath poured out on Jesus in our place as he goes to the depths of Sheol for us that we are birthed into newness of life on the other side of those waters of wrath to where he says, you're mine. And it's not just the Jewish people. It's all Gentiles. And it's anybody who bows the knee to me and I will be your faithful husband. I will be the one that rescues my bride. I will be the one who slays the dragon. I will be the one who is the hero who saves the day. And it's not fable. It's not fairy tale. 
It's the God of the universe writing a love story over our hearts that is beyond our wildest imaginations, that evokes glory and worship now and forevermore because he's coming back. He's coming back to finish what he started. You know what the scriptures say? You know why he came? Scriptures say that he came to destroy the works of the devil. And so, there are many in here, and there are many watching online, who are still wrapped up in the slavery of the works of the devil. He said, I came to free you from that. The wrath has been poured out on me. Will you trust in my sacrifice? Will you rejoice in what I've done for you? There is a hero of the story. His name is Jesus. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are the one who has written this masterful, glorious story that we get to be a part of and called into. And we also get to be a people who get to tell this story to so many people that you bring into our lives, those who would long for a rescue story to be true, and we know that there is one that is true. And so we get to tell it. We get to tell it in our words. We get to tell it in our deeds and our actions. Lord, we get to point people to you, the rescuer. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you that you have delivered us from the bondage of sin through the waters of wrath that Jesus took for us so that we can have newness of life even now on the other side as a part of your kingdom, free in your presence. Thank you that you've called us your bride. You are a faithful husband. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.